Hey, Pregnish listeners, we surveyed almost 1,100 patients to learn why they left their fertility clinics and are launching an amazing new program based on the survey that will reach over 1,000 healthcare providers, thanks to the support of industry sponsors, Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions, and EMD Serono. This innovative program with 25 top fertility advocates and specialists as speakers has just launched. If you're interested in learning more, taking the free course, or supporting the program, visit PregnishVerified.com. At the end of last year, I participated in the Baylor University uterine transplant trial. Um, they, at the time, had conducted 15 uterine transplants in the United States, and I was in that bucket of 15. Wow, you're a, you're a uterine pioneer. I know. Welcome back to The Pregnantist Show. Today I am joined by a fascinating woman. She went from infertility to mom of five and also donated her uterus. And I definitely want to get into this conversation. April, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is April Lane. I am a mom of five who built her family through various paths to parenthood, adoption, IVF, and spontaneous pregnancy after nine and a half years of infertility. Okay, that's a lot to take in right there. So you have five children, yes. various ways that the children entered your lives. So my husband and I were married in uh, 2007. We started trying for our family shortly after that. About a year into trying, we were diagnosed with unexplained infertility. We, in four and a half years, we completed seven IVFs. Without success, without live birth, we achieved pregnancy but never made it to term. Um, my son was adopted at the four-and-a-half-year mark from birth, so in 2011 was when he was born. Um, but we continued through with our IVF throughout that, and our twins, who are number three and four, were our 10th IVF. Wow. I can, you know, as an 18-time fertility treatment patient, I can say we're in the same club. I don't yeah. meet many people <laughs> who have done that distance. Um, so your 10 IVFs, you adopted at, at the four-year mark. Mm -hmm. What was that process like? How did you make that decision? Before we even got married, we knew we wanted to adopt a child. We just thought it would be later in our family building journey. Um, and then as time went on and we weren't having success and money was running out, coverage, insurance coverage was running out, our cash flow was running out, we thought about maybe now's the time to look into adoption. Um, we started down the journey with state foster care. Um, we decided that wasn't the right path for us at the time. Um, so then we went private, which, as you know, the cost is astronomical. Um, the process itself was actually really easy for us. Um, we were told to expect a seven to nine month wait, and we were matched within 12 hours. Wow. Talk yeah. about, so you're trying for years and then boom, boom, you have a child. Wow. So the headline here would be from infertility to mom of five. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how your family was built after you adopted your son and how you kept going through, through all these treatments. People often ask that, and I don't know. The answer is I don't know. Every time we had a failed cycle, I thought there's no way I can do this again. Um, throughout the journey, I never really feel like I picked myself back up. I just got lower and lower and deeper and deeper in my grief. I don't know. I don't know how we kept doing it. We just did. The end goal was always to be parents. Um, 
And after our son was born, Miles, after he was born, I thought a lot of the emotional trauma would go away, and it never really did. I was a mom, but I was a damaged mom. And so pregnant bellies, uh, pregnancy announcements, they still affected me the same. And so we just kept kept going. And I, and I really, the answer is I don't know. I love your honesty because I think so often people try to wrap it up in a neat bow. You know, you have infertility, then boom, you have a family created and we forget it all. And that's certainly not been my experience no. either because we carry not only the emotional, sometimes trauma of pregnancy losses and pain, but we carry a lot of bills. So talk to me about how you financed all of this. We're from Massachusetts. So we are one of the now 16 states who have uh, fertility coverage. So we were lucky in that aspect. My employer was out of New Jersey, so we didn't fall under the Massachusetts mandate. So we did have a small bucket of coverage. It was $25,000. We used that up. Um, And then we paid for secondary insurance that covered just me, which was $600 a month, and that covered six IVF cycles. When people ask me how much I've spent, I actually never added it up because I thought I would faint if I actually looked at it. That was (laughs) our kitchen money. I just didn't add it up. We bought a fixer-upper. We bought an old house built in the 1800s, 1878, and that was our kitchen money. That was our, you know... HVAC money. That was our house money. And we just blasted right through it. Did you know you wanted to have a big family or was that something that you built to your surprise? I always wanted a big family. Um, When we got married and the pastor was, you know, doing the vows, he said to me, you know, the father of my children. And I responded with the father of all four of our children. And everyone (laughs) laughed. I was like, this is not a joke. I, you know, I always I'm one of four. I always wanted a big family. You said in your vows you wanted, you know, to your four kids, you toasted them. <laughs> and then you're diagnosed at, I don't know what age, but with unexplained infertility. What, What is that? I still don't know what that is. And I, I ask doctors all the time. It feels like a non-diagnosis diagnosis. So what, what did they tell you? I think, so I'll tell you what they told me. And then, you know, I, I think unexplained will change in time. I think a lot of the unexplained infertilities from 10 years ago have been had an explanation now. And I think we'll continue to see more explanations for it. But the definition is exactly how it sounds. There's no reason based on testing for there to be an inability to conceive a child. So sperm looks good. Eggs look good. The female reproductive organs, the uterus, tubes, everything looks good. Cervix looks good, and there's no reason for it. How do you respond when people say, well, everything looks good. You just need to relax, April. It'll it'll work. I love that one. So I need to ask you about it. Right, punch them. You want to punch them? No, I. I wish there was. I think advocacy has improved a ton in the past ten years since we started our journey to parenthood, but I wish there was more respect for the disease, um, and there needs to be a m- more respect for the disease. You would never say that to someone with cancer. You would never say, just relax, your neuroblastoma is just going to go away if you just chill out. Stop thinking about it, go on vacation, have a glass of wine. And that just, it doesn't treat a disease and it doesn't help the emotional aspect of a disease. Um, I found being blunt was always better for me. I was very uncomfortable with thank you or keeping my mouth shut or um, I found being blunt 
helped me. So a lot of times I would say things like, well, I'll let my reproductive endocrinologist know, you know, 12 plus (laughs) years of school, they make, you know, $300,000 a year and we're spending tens of thousands of dollars on this, but I'll let them know that you suggest a $20 bottle of wine. I'll let them know that if I have a margarita, I'll get knocked Taco Tuesday is the way to go. (laughs) Um, I would say things like that. Um, Or, you know, if I was having a bad day, I would just say that's incredibly hurtful to me. Please don't say that to me. You wouldn't say that to anyone else. Don't say it to me. You know, when people used to say to me, don't, and I tell the audience at Pregnant this all the time, don't stress and you'll get pregnant or you'll stay pregnant. I, I actually teach them that the thing to say to me is actually, of course you're stressed because your body can't carry pregnancy. That must be really hard. And what do you need? Like, yeah. how can I support you? Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice if you people know, just replaced mixed... that? People in war-torn countries get pregnant every yes. day. So, um, yeah, yes. it's wonderful to not be stressed. I think the key is if you don't have the disease of infertility, it probably helps to not be stressed yeah. when you're conceiving. But if you have blocked tubes, PCOS, fibroid tumors, whatever else so many of us have, yeah. that's It's, it's always going to be on your mind. That. So so when you spontaneously got pregnant... So I thought I had reproductive cancer. I was... So after the twins were born, my OB had the conversation at six weeks postpartum about birth control. And I was like, no way. We have transferred about... We've created about 130 embryos. We've transferred a couple dozen. And we only have two children from that. There's no... Mm-mm, I don't need birth control. Um, I was training for a seven-mile road race called Falmouth Road Race. That's in Massachusetts. And every time I ran, I was getting really sick. My stomach was hurting me a lot. Um, And I had been pregnant, so I should have known that those were symptoms of pregnancy. But a spontaneous pregnancy was never on my radar. And so I called my OB, and I was like, I think something's not right. Maybe I have some sort of like uterine cancer, cervical cancer. Something's not right. They had asked me to come in for a blood test to confirm or, or negate pregnancy. And I was like, eh, I've been told for nine and a half years that I'm not pregnant by some stranger over a phone. Um, that door's closed. I'm not doing that. So they suggested I take a home pregnancy test. I took it at Whole Foods because <laughs> I was there. I went to CVS, got the test. Um, went to Whole Foods and the line came up right away. So mm. I th- threw it in the tampon bin and I left. And then I, when I left, I thought to myself, don't people show this? Like, don't they share this test with their spouse? Or so I went back and dug it out of the t- <laughs> with my bare hand. I dug it out of the so tampon bin. So you were in a Whole Foods. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, you're in a Whole Foods bathroom garbage can digging out a pregnancy test. But isn't that infertility? I mean, all these... I didn't know what to do. April, I used to look at this this, um, sign with road construction, you know, when it says bump? Yes. And years ago, I was like, that's how I'm going to announce my pregnancy. And we have these images of how we're going to present our perfect family stories. And then when you have infertility, it puts a whole wrench in it, It right? And it just looks like how you explained it, digging through trash, confused. Yes. (laughs) And so I took a picture of it in the bathroom and sent it to my husband. And he's like, what the F is that? And I said, a pregnancy test. And he was like, whose? (laughs) Mine. Um, How many more pregnancy tests did you need to take to believe it? Um, I, I actually took them through about six months of pregnancy. Um, and if people don't know this, the color of the line doesn't change as your HCG gets higher. It has, 
basically one color. And it can vary depending on the day or the test, but I did, I did them two or three times a day through about six months of pregnancy. Mm. Pregnancy tests are big for, for us infertiles, that's it is, for sure. It is. And I would send the pictures to my reproductive endocrinologist. Why is the line lighter? And she's like, stop it. You're, you know, you're like 15 weeks pregnant. Cut it out. It's not going to change the color, but... I needed it. It was my mm. clutch. Two weeks before my baby was due through our gestational carrier, of course, but I was telling friends, I think I'm having a baby in two weeks. And my friends with the kids said, you are having, yeah. why do you keep saying I think? But that's also infertility. It is. So yeah. I get it. Um, you have a fascinating development that is recent that I would love to hear more about. Mm-hmm. Sure. So... At the end of last year, I participated in the Baylor University uterine transplant trial. Um, they, at the time, had conducted 15 uterine transplants in the United States, and I was in that bucket of 15. Wow. You're a uterine pioneer. I know. It's so crazy. <laughs> and when I started it, I wasn't sure because I've had losses. We have infertility. I wasn't sure if I'd even be accepted into the trial, but I was like, I'm going to put my name out there and see what happens. Um, And sure enough, my uterus was ideal. My vessels are ideal. I was, at the time, I'm sure there have been better um, candidates, but at the time they said I was vascularly the best candidate they had seen. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that crazy? From from pregnancy losses and everything else. What made you even pursue that uh, um, to, to donate your uterus? That's a very big step. It is. Um, and it's a big sacrifice on my family. Uh, but we, I, had, I knew that I was resolved. My husband and I were resolved with our family building. But I felt that I wasn't necessarily resolved with helping someone else build a family. We had investigated surrogacy. Um, but through conversations about that, my husband at one point was like, you know, you get really sick, pregnant, I don't know if I could do that for nine months if the baby's not coming home for us. It's a really heavy lift for him. I I, I throw up the entire pregnancy. Um, I have a really hard, after 2 p.m., really hard nights with pregnancy. And that's a fair and valid emotion to have. And it's not even really a conversation. So once he said that, I knew that surrogacy wasn't right for our family. Um, I started a nonprofit in 2010 called AGC Scholarship Foundation. We give financial assistance to individuals diagnosed with infertility for their family building. And we had about a year and a half ago, a year ago or so, we had an applicant who was part of the trial. She was the fourth successful uterine transplant in the country. Um, and she had applied. And so I started investigating that trial. At the time, there were two phases. They did 10 um, in phase one and then 10 transplants in phase two. At the time, they had just finished the 10 and it was closed. But then through my communications with her, I found out that they had opened phase two and I was part of phase two. Wow. So that really is a sacrifice. Um, what do you have to sacrifice to donate a uterus? So um, it's a lot of travel because Baylor and Dallas was the only site um, at the time doing it. So Flights are on us, so financially, um, it's a heavy lift. I also didn't qualify for medical leave. I think I made the mistake of calling it uh, a organ donation with my company, and I think if I had said hysterectomy, 
it would have been covered, but organ donation is elective. So I didn't qualify for leave, paid leave. Um, and it's time away from your family. It's an eight-week wait restriction, so I couldn't pick up my kids. I couldn't even carry groceries for eight mm. weeks. And then it's a 12-week full restriction. And I just want to remind listeners that you have five kids. I know. So we're not talking about, and you're working full-time. How old are your kids while, you're, while you were going through this? Uh, two, four, four, six, and seven. So that's it. That's a huge sacrifice. Yes. How did your family support you, challenge you? What what happened with them during this? Um, the kids were really great. They're very well versed in reproduction. It's conversation we have often, especially with our oldest being adopted. We talk a lot about babies growing in bellies and human tadpoles and eggs, and they understand reproduction. So when we had the conversation with them, Miles's question was actually, will you be a birth mother? Um, because he understood a baby grown in someone else's belly as a birth mother. Um, so we, they were great about it. They were nervous about me having a surgery. When I was FaceTiming, they wanted to see my incision. And then they were panicking, like, is that going to be there forever? But we practiced getting in and out of our car seats. We practiced climbing in the back themselves and all of that beforehand. So they were really good post-op being able to be self-sufficient. We taught the two-year-old how to climb in and out of her crib, which was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) But she did. She figured it out. And then she forgot quickly, which was also great. Um, She doesn't try to get out now. But it was a heavy lift for them. And and for you and your husband. You're such a reproductive role model. Uh, I think that's a real thing. So you are that. But um, yeah, for sure. I mean, so your husband, he didn't, he was nervous about you pursuing surrogacy. How did he feel about these 12 weeks of everything? 12 weeks plus, I mean, obviously plus, but how did he wrap his head around that? Uh, He was supportive from the beginning. He was concerned about the obvious things, surgeries. I was under for nine hours. It was a nine-hour surgery. He was concerned about my health. Um, We had concerns about sexual dysfunction, urinary incontinence, all of those things. Um, Baylor did a really good job with providing me uh, with as much data as they could on post-hysterectomy outcomes, a lot of the patient population didn't apply because this is different. We're younger in this trial where a lot of those outcomes at the median age is like 60. And so um, they did provide some research for me that was really helpful. Um, But he was supportive the whole time. Um, He's been great. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, So... What was it like to donate your uterus? Like, take us to that. You're you're getting wheeled in. I don't know what happens. So talk, talk me through this. So we go in. They have you stripped down, get in your gown, you get surgical ready. And I ended up getting my period the morning of, of surgery. So I got my period, my very last period. Um, then they, they wheel you back. And the way that it works is they cut you open. Then they look because all they have up until that point are scans. So then they look at your vessels, they look at the best layout, where they should cut, what they should take. Um, so they take it. They also take your tubes. They don't use your tubes, but the tubes are the number one spot where reproductive cancer starts. And since they're in there and they're not going to be functional, they take them out. Um, they take your full cervix in one millimeter of the vagina. Um, so after they take all of that, then they have to basically do vaginal reconstruction. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Did they put you in touch with other women? Because so few have done this. 
Yep. So I, I spoke to, I knew a uterine recipient through AGC, my nonprofit, and then they put me in touch with a couple donors. So I could ask more of the real world things like when, how was your sex life after? When were you running? When did you resume normal activities, back to work, all that stuff. So they do. And I've been in touch with potential donors since my surgery. So we've talked about the, the what, the where, the how. I want to get back to the why. Why did you do this? I, I, so good question. I think that we all have the capability to give back in whatever capacity we can. And for everyone, that's going to be a little bit different. You and I understand the impact of infertility and you become part of this community and this tribe. They support you, you support them. And I just knew that I had the ability to do more um, and it wasn't a question about what it would be. I, it was going to be surrogacy. It was I, I didn't want to donate my eggs um, because for me personally, I'm on the adoptive parent side um, and donating my eggs, which, uh, you know, genetics, it felt like being on the other side of adoption to me. So that wasn't an option for me. But um, you just do whatever you can for the community. And I felt like this was within our capabilities to help someone out. So through your infertility diagnosis and creating a beautiful family, was it? did it feel like a call to action? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. It did feel like a call to action. Um, it's gotten a lot of recognition that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with because I didn't do it for attention um, and I didn't do it for recognition. I did it for someone else. Um, and people have asked, do you want to meet her? Do you? And I would love to meet her, but I'm okay if we don't meet. It's it's hers now. You know, it's not. Wow. You know, but not my... I mean, let's. I just want to stay on that for a minute yeah. because you're you donated with so much effort and love and thought and pain and time. So much pain. It's so much pain. <laughs> um, a, a huge piece of yourself. So you won't necessarily meet or know who this person is. No. So I did. I made her a basket of period items. I got her like period underwear and pads <laughs> and um, I got her a little diamond uterus brooch um, and I wrote her a letter and I did put like my full name in there. Yeah. Um, I wasn't supposed to, but I did put my full name in there. But really, it's it's her choice. Um, I think it's a lot of pressure for the recipient to know the donor. There's pressure to mo- for it to work. Um, if it fails, that's really hard as a recipient to then have a relationship with the donor if it doesn't work. Um, So I'm okay with the distance. The trial requires you to stay distant for a year. They prefer that you stay um, distant until it's resolved. So either a baby is born or the uterus is removed. Um, And I'm okay with that. I feel like you're, you know, every guest in the studio is special to me and, and a wonderful guest. But as someone who had a problematic and actually has, let's be honest, a problematic uterus, couldn't use my uterus to bring my baby into the world. I'm I'm extra touched by your donation and your sacrifice because I, I just I will I will never understand um the, the, what goes into that kind of decision? Because I've never been pregnant. I've never had a pregnancy right. that's lasted, and I just—I don't know. I'm just very grateful you exist in the world. 
have you inspired other people that you know of to donate? Because you're public. You're, you're out yes. there in the media talking about it. You also have your nonprofit. Yeah. Tell me about that. So, um, so two things. Going public. That was uh, I was approached by Baylor about that. When I was going for my 12-week post-op, they had approached me to see if I would do some internal Baylor interviews and potentially something with the ABC affiliate in Dallas. And that was because they had five uh, recipients and no donors for those five recipients. And so they were hoping to bring more awareness to the trial. Um, So, of course, I said yes. I'm very comfortable with being public uh, about it. So that's why I went public, and um, they did fill those five spots. I do know one of one of the donors. Um, it's a, a friend of mine that applied, and she's the last. She got the last slot, I believe. But uh, so yeah, I did inspire other people to do it. Other people said I would love to do this, uh, but Dallas is hard. There are other sites opening up, so I think more people that I know locally, or at least regionally would maybe go to those sites um, in Boston. You mentioned something before that's so true, that everything changes in reproductive medicine because the technology is just growing rapidly. And even since I started treatments in 2011... Well, we started trying before that. So the timeline's always strange for me. But we started treatments in 2011. It's totally changed. Totally different. And so... What do you imagine the future of uterine transplants or this technology? Where do you think it's heading? Do you think more hospitals and universities and clinics will will do this? We're already seeing that pick up. Um, It started in Sweden. Uh, Dr. Johansson, who runs the trial in Dallas, started it in Sweden. Um, And then she came here. And now we're starting to see other sites across the country open up with trials and smaller. I think there's one in Boston opening up and they receive funding for three transplants. So it's smaller, but we are seeing it spread. I also think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the trans community. Um, I think this is going to be a viable option uh, for a lot of the trans community, too. Um, But there's cost. There's what are the payers going to do um, with this? So there's a lot of questions, uh, but I think they've certainly proven that this is a safe and effective procedure. Thanks to April for sharing her extraordinary story and to you, the audience, for listening to another episode of Pregnantish, where we tell the most inspiring modern family building stories and capture what's happening in reproductive science today. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and tell people to join us. This is the family of the future.